Uh, well, friends, uh, we've heard a lot about bread this morning, but uh, have you ever had a, had a craving for bread? Uh, some of you might know that I've been on uh, a keto diet uh, for health reasons, which means I've cut out all bread from my diet. Uh, I haven't eaten any bread for the past four months. Uh, it's a completely miserable experience. And so whenever I pass by a bread shop or see other people enjoying bread, as I know that we'll see this, this morning at morning tea, uh, I have this intense craving for bread. I want that satisfaction uh, of eating bread again. Now, uh, we've been looking at Matthew's Gospel uh, for the past few months, and uh, you may have noticed, uh, even as we were reading this morning's passage, that there is a frequent mention of bread. And so if you have a look with me at chapter 15, verse 26, uh, if you have your Bibles there, have a look with me at chapter 15, verse 26. Uh, Jesus speaks about the children's bread. You see it there? Uh, in the very next verse, the woman in the passage is willing to take the crumbs that fall from the table. And uh, the very last part of this passage is that great miracle where Jesus feeds 4,000 people, not including women and children. And so it seems that Matthew wants us to see something about the significance of bread this morning. But what is the significance of bread in the Bible? Well, uh, if you've been reading your Bible for a while, you will know that the symbol of bread in the Bible is really a symbol of God's kingdom. And so in places like Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6, if you're writing notes, you might just want to write down that reference, Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6, the coming kingdom of God is described as uh, this great feast where there is not only bread, but you know a bottle of Penfold's Grange and the choicest cuts of meat. It just makes you salivate uh, reading it and thinking about it. Uh, it's the image of a great feast or banquet where uh, those from all peoples and all nations who belong to the kingdom of God will one day dine together with God and his people, enjoying uh, the extravagance of God's blessing in their lives. It's a picture, in other words, of heaven itself. Do you hunger for heaven? Have you come this morning to church hungering for heaven? I think this hunger for heaven is something we see all the time in people. Uh, this week we had a tradesman come to uh, our house to fix a few things. Uh, I got chatting uh, with uh, this, this man. Uh, I got to find out a few things about him and I, I revealed a few things about myself to him. Uh, then he asked me, uh, why did you go into Christian ministry? I said, it's because I think there is nothing more important than people hearing from God where they will spend eternity. Oh, I see, he said. I said, do you think about where you will spend eternity? He said, all the time. And it led to a gospel conversation. You see, even though this man did not know Jesus, he was thinking about eternity. He had a deep hunger for heaven. Are you someone who 
hungers for heaven. Now, we may all hunger for heaven in some sense, but who are the ones whom Jesus, as the King of heaven, will ultimately receive into his kingdom? Well, that's the question that is answered, I think, in this wonderful encounter that Jesus has with a woman who comes to him with her desperate need. And I want you to notice uh, just a few important things here. Uh, Firstly, notice the location of where Jesus is in this part of uh, Matthew's Gospel. Uh, You can see it there in chapter 15, verse 21. Chapter 15, verse 21, uh, it says, And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. It's almost redundant, don't you think, to say that Jesus went away from a place and then withdrew, isn't it? It's almost like uh, saying the same thing twice. I think what Matthew is doing here is he's repeating uh, the same thing to emphasize that Jesus is actually going to a particular location. And where does he go? Well, he goes to the district of Tyre and Sidon, which are two cities uh, to the northwest of Israel. In other words, he's in Gentile territory. He's outside of the physical bounds of Israel and the Jewish people among whom he has been doing his ministry. Further, notice that it is in this region that we are told that a Canaanite woman comes to Jesus. Now, if you know your Old Testament history, uh, you will know that the Canaanites were the historic enemies of the people of God uh, when they entered into the Promised Land. You know, people like the Amorites and the Hittites and Perizzites and Jebusites and all the other ites in the the Old Testament, uh, they're all Canaanites. Uh, The Philistines as well. They were all Canaanites who were the enemies of God. In fact, Gentile people like this were considered by the Jewish people as nothing but dogs. Uh, Now, I know that in this age of YouTube, uh, whenever we think about dogs, we think about miniature poodles and, um, you know, those cute and cuddly things. Um, You know, I live with one. But uh, when the Jews thought about Gentiles as dogs, uh, that wasn't the image they had in mind. They were talking about those filthy animals that salivated and you didn't know where their mouth had been overnight. And so I think that we are meant here to see the shock of someone like this and someone who is a woman coming to Jesus, the King of Israel. But secondly, notice what what Matthew wants us to uh, see here is that Jesus is Lord even amongst these people. Jesus is Lord even amongst the Gentiles. And uh, you can see this in what Jesus does for the Canaanite woman. Uh, You know, this woman comes to Jesus because of her great need. Uh, You can see it there in verse 22 where it says, And behold, a Canaanite woman came from that region uh, and came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Uh, Now, friends, uh, we don't really see too often what demon possession looks like uh, in our city and uh, in in the West. 
Uh, in our part of the world, it seems that Satan uses much more subtle means of blinding people to their need for Jesus. He uses things like the deceitfulness of riches, for example, or the pressures of busyness that has no time for Jesus, or the addiction to hedonistic pleasure. It's all these things that Satan uses to blind people to finding true life in heaven. But if you go to areas where shamanism is practiced, for example, in in, uh, some Asian countries, or where animism is practiced in places like Africa, uh, you will see frequently the reality of demon possession. And here we are told that this Canaanite woman comes to Jesus desperately seeking help because her daughter is severely oppressed by this demon. I don't know whether you've ever seen a parent with a desperately sick child before. Perhaps you've been a parent with a desperately sick child. My wife and I have friends who have a child that suffers from life-threatening seizures. And uh, I tell you, there is nothing that these parents wouldn't do in order to see their child well again. They will spend whatever money they have. They will get up in the middle of the night, sometimes for years, to administer life-giving medicine. They will endure the endless visits and stays in hospital. There is nothing they wouldn't do. You see a similar desperation in this Canaanite woman, don't you? She is a Gentile, but she desperately seeks help from Jesus, calling him Lord and asking him for help. And what does Jesus do? Well, if you come down with me to verse 28, you can see there that in the end he grants her request. He heals her daughter so simply. There is no prayer. He doesn't even visit the young child. But like God, he simply says a word and his daughter is healed. Jesus is Lord even amongst the Gentiles. Friends, in other words, Jesus is not just a local God. Like all the other gods who are worshipped by a few specific people, but Jesus has come for Everyone. He is the Lord of all. But thirdly, I want you to see that those who are received by Jesus into the kingdom of heaven are those who display faith in Jesus. Those who display faith in Jesus. In other words, it's not simply everyone among the Gentiles who are received into the kingdom, but it is those who display a genuine faith Indeed, in this particular passage, it is the faith of this Canaanite woman that is highlighted for us. And what is genuine faith like? Uh, Well, here are three uh, quick things that you can see about the faith of this Canaanite woman. Uh, Number one, faith recognizes the person of Jesus. Faith recognizes the person of Jesus. You can see it there in verse 22 where the Canaanite woman cries out, 
Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Now, we're not really told here exactly how this woman knew that Jesus was the Lord and the Messiah of Israel. And yet you can see here that she realizes something about the person of Jesus. She realizes that he is the only one who can help her in her desperate need. Number two, faith comes to Jesus with a posture of humility. Faith comes to Jesus with a posture of humility. You can see it there in verse 25 that even when she is rebuffed by the disciples of Jesus, she comes to Jesus kneeling at his feet and begs him for help. In other words, faith doesn't feel entitled. Faith does not demand help as though you deserve it. But faith knows how undeserving you really are, but nevertheless desperately goes to Jesus on our hands and knees, knowing that he is the only one who can help. And number three, faith is persistent. You can see it there in verse 27 that even though she has just been called a dog by Jesus, this Canaanite woman continues to press Jesus for help. In other words, there is a certain doggedness to faith, isn't there? Excuse the pun. Faith refuses to simply stay still in spiritual danger and do nothing about it, but continues to go to Jesus, pressing him, being willing to take even the crumbs, because you know that even the crumbs that Jesus gives will meet your need. Now the beautiful thing here is that when Jesus sees this kind of faith in the Canaanite woman, he rewards her. Verse 28, Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done as you desire. Now friends, uh, why do you think Matthew has placed this story of the Canaanite woman in this part of Matthew's Gospel? I mean, imagine for a moment that you are Matthew. Uh, You're someone who has witnessed all that Jesus did and taught in his earthly ministry. Uh, You're sitting at your desk, um, writing this Gospel, compiling uh, this record of Jesus' ministry. You're surrounded by post-it notes where you've jotted all the things that you've seen uh, of Jesus. Why would you put this story of the Canaanite woman here in the Gospel account? Well, do you remember what we saw last week? We saw Jesus teaching his disciples about the problem of the human heart, didn't we? We probably left church last week squirming a little bit as Jesus exposed our filthy hearts that is full of evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false witness and slander. We might not have a sick daughter, but I hope we left thinking that our greatest need before God is to have our filthy hearts cleansed by the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And how do we have our filthy hearts cleansed by Jesus? How do we receive the forgiveness of sins and the certain hope of being a part of the kingdom of heaven? Well, Matthew reaches for that story of the Canaanite woman. It is by faith that you are received into the kingdom of heaven. Friends, are you someone who recognises the person of Jesus as the only one who can meet your greatest need? Which is, a, which is a, the need of a heart to be cleansed before God? Are you someone who has the posture of humility before Jesus, knowing that you have no claim on him, but that he has every claim on your life? Are you someone who persistently goes to Jesus and asks for help with your heart problem? Have you done that this week? Is that something we do regularly? If you do, then it doesn't matter who you are. God's word says that Jesus has come for filthy dogs like me and you to cleanse us and to receive us into the kingdom of heaven itself. But friends, here's the thing. Did you notice the prejudice that Jesus' disciples show to the Canaanite woman when she comes to Jesus for help? Did you see that? Uh, You can see it there in verse 23, after the woman first comes to Jesus. Uh, What do the disciples say there? Well, uh, it says there, And the disciples came and begged him, that is Jesus, saying, Send her away. For she is crying out after us. It's astonishing, isn't it? This Gentile woman comes to Jesus in sheer desperation and all the disciples can say is send her away. She's making too much noise. She's a nuisance. She's just a filthy Gentile. However, perhaps the more astonishing thing here is that Jesus seems to agree with them. Did you notice how Jesus initially responds to this woman? When she first comes to him, it seems like he gives her the cold shoulder. In verse 23, we're told that he did not answer her a word. Later, Jesus says to his disciples, in full hearing of the woman, that he has come only for the people of Israel. You can see it there in verse 24 where he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Again, later, Jesus seems to imply that he has come to offer bread for the kingdom of heaven only to the the children of Israel and not for dogs like this woman. In verse 26, he says there, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. What is going on here? Is Jesus really saying that he has come only for the people of Israel, ethnic Israel? Well, it can't be that, because if you've been a careful reader of Matthew's Gospel up until this point, you will know that he has been keen to show us that Jesus is Lord not only of the Jews, but also the Gentiles. Um, if, in chapter 2, for example, it is the Magi, who come from the east, outside of Israel, to pay homage to 
the one who is born the king of the Jews. In chapter 8, it, it is the Gentile centurion whose faith is rewarded with the healing of his servant. And here in chapter 15, it's impossible to miss that Jesus is intentionally going into Gentile territory to bring blessing to the Gentiles. Indeed, that's what verses 29 to 31 is all about, isn't it? Jesus does miraculous acts of healing so that the mute starts speaking and the crippled are made healthy again and the lame start walking and the blind start seeing. What is happening is that God's promised kingdom is starting to break into the people of the Gentiles. As we are told at the end of verse 31, that these Gentiles glorified the God of Israel. You see, it is the Gentiles who are coming into the kingdom of heaven by glorifying Israel's God. And so what is going on here with Jesus? Why does he say that he's only come for Israel? Well, um, I'd like to hear what you think about what's really going on here with Jesus, uh, perhaps over morning tea. But the best explanation I've heard this week is that Jesus is not saying here that he has come only for the people of Israel to the exclusion of all others. Rather, what he is doing is he is parroting the words of the disciples so as to draw out the faith of this Canaanite woman in order to teach his disciples a huge lesson. And what is that lesson? Well, it is that Jesus has come for all people, which he shows by healing this woman's daughter. He is the Lord of all people. Not just Jews, not even just Canaanites, but Koreans, Chinese, Indians, Sri Lankans, Lebanese. Not just women, women like this Canaanite woman, but men and girls and boys. Not just pagans like this woman, but people of other creeds. Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, atheists, secularists, not just poor people, but rich people and middle class people and the unemployed and the homeless. It's a lesson that the disciples need to learn, for later on he will command his disciples with all authority that they are to go out into the world to make disciples of all peoples in every nation, not just Israel. Now, friends, I want to ask us this morning whether you and I are similarly prejudiced like these disciples. Are we people who think of Jesus as just a local God who has come only for us? Or is Jesus the one who is truly Lord of all, all peoples, all nations? and who graciously invites all into his kingdom. Now, I think it's easy these days, as our city becomes more and more secular, and as we face more and more uh, seeming opposition in the world, to simply retreat into the comfort of our Christian gatherings and not take seriously God's word that tells us that Jesus has come for all, 
and is the Lord of all. Now, many months ago, I, was, I, I went for a walk in the morning. I saw a man sitting at a bus stop waiting for his bus. Um, I'd actually seen him a few times uh, as I passed uh, by that road uh, in the mornings. But uh, this particular morning, I plucked up the courage to begin a conversation with him. Uh, it turns out he's a deeply religious man, but the more and more I spoke with him, it seemed that he didn't really know who Jesus was. And uh, I've been thinking for a while that I should invite him to read the Bible with me. But, you know, because church work had become so busy, I simply put that on indefinite hold because, frankly, it's easier to get involved in the things we do at church, isn't it? It's easier for Christians to simply get involved at church than to care for the salvation of outsiders. But Jesus' words this week reminded me that I need to go to speak to this man once again and work out ways to share the gospel with him. But how about you? Is your Christian life simply a holy huddle at church? Is your attitude one that is content to simply keep outsiders out of the kingdom? If honestly that is where you are at, then perhaps you might want to just check that you yourself are in the kingdom. Or are you someone who, like Jesus, offers the kingdom of heaven to all? I don't know the individual circumstances of everyone at church, but I do know this. I know that there is no one that you will meet this week for whom Jesus has not come for. And I know there is no one that you will meet this week that Jesus is not Lord over and so is outside the possibility of entering his kingdom. I wonder whether we believe this. I wonder whether that's something we can keep on challenging each other about, uh, even over morning tea this morning. Well, friends, uh, we've seen that Jesus has come for all. All people everywhere are invited to the banquet of heaven itself. Yet it is only those who respond to Jesus in faith who are received by Jesus to be part of his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. But in the final part of our passage this morning, we see Jesus feeding bread to 4,000 people, and that's not even including women and children. There were probably many more. Now, you may remember that it wasn't long ago that we saw another feeding miracle in Matthew's Gospel. Do you remember that? Back in chapter 14, uh, you can see there that Jesus feeds 5,000 people with similar food. And so why does, Jesus, uh, why does Matthew include another very similar miracle here in Matthew's Gospel? Well, I think, uh, as we've been seeing, it's because Matthew wants to show us that Jesus has come to bring not only Jews, but Gentiles into his kingdom. Uh, when Jesus fed the 5,000 back in chapter 14, the people whom he was feeding there were Jews. But here I want you to see that the people that he's feeding are Gentiles. He's in Gentile territory, as we've been seeing all along. 
Now, uh, I don't know whether you agree with me here. Happy for you to disagree with me. But I think the number 4,000 is intentionally uh, symbolic here. For the number 4 is symbolic of the four corners of the earth, of the world. And the number 7, which is the number of baskets of food that is left over, is symbolic of the completeness of the kingdom of heaven, which, now, uh, which is now offered uh, to these Gentiles. You see, sorry, I've just lost my page. It's symbolic of the kingdom of heaven, uh, which now is offered uh, to, to these Gentiles. And so I wonder whether uh, the number four here is symbolic uh, of Jesus bringing in the Gentiles now. Just as there were 12 baskets left over in the feeding of the 5,000 Jewish people, symbolizing the complete number of Israel, so what we have here is Jesus bringing in the complete number of Gentiles into his kingdom. But here's the thing. Did you notice that in our passage, we began with a woman who asked to be given crumbs? And we end with a passage where Jesus feeds people until they are completely satisfied and eat until they can eat no more. Um, I heard a wonderful story this week. Uh, I don't even know whether this story is true, but uh, I think it's so good I'm going to tell you uh, the story anyway. Uh, it's a story about Alexander the Great. Uh, the story goes that Alexander the Great was travelling in his royal procession in all his glory, as uh, emperors do, when a beggar sitting by the roadside held out his grubby hands uh, and asked for help. Uh, this beggar was poor, he was wretched, uh, he had no right to be holding out his grubby hands to the emperor, no less. And yet, as Alexander passed by, he threw the beggar not just a copper coin, but several gold coins. Now, one of uh, Alexander's servants was so impressed uh, or so surprised by the generosity of the emperor that he asked Alexander, he said, my lord, copper coins would have been adequate to meet a beggar's need. Why give him gold? And you know what Alexander said? He said, copper coins would suit the beggar's need. But gold coins suit Alexander's giving. And that's kind of what is going on here, I think, in the feeding of the 4,000. Jesus is not just a king who is content to give his people the crumbs. But he is a king who gives extravagantly. Indeed, he is a king who, we will see, gives himself on the cross to die for filthy and unclean dogs like you and me, so that we might have our hearts cleansed and forgiven and be warmly received and welcomed into his kingdom both now and forever. You see, for those who hunger for heaven, there is no greater satisfaction than knowing that through Jesus we have eternal security 
with God in heaven. Do you know this satisfaction in your life? So often we try to find our ultimate satisfaction in all the wrong places. And so inside are deeply unsatisfied. But God says we, you will only find it in one place. Have you been fed the bread of heaven by the Lord Jesus Christ himself? Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that as Gentiles we have experienced the extravagant generosity of Jesus who has, who has lavished blessing upon blessing upon us in the gospel. We thank you that through his death and resurrection we have found forgiveness of sin and a deep satisfaction of knowing such eternal security that comes only in Christ. Father, forgive us for the times when we have been content to receive such a great salvation for ourselves and ignore the needs of those around us who also desperately need to know Jesus. Forgive us and help us to be more like our Lord, who has come for all and who is Lord of all. Help us to be obedient to his command to make disciples of all nations. Father, we pray for our friends and work colleagues and those whom we interact with during the week who do not yet know you. Father, we ask that you would place in them not only a deep hunger for heaven, but that you would use us as your people to bring the good news to them so that they might also hear of this bread of heaven that is available to them in Christ. We pray that in your kindness you would pour out your spirit on them and bring them to life and that you would instill in us the deep conviction that Jesus has come for all and is Lord of all. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.